This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. I'm not joking. I kill people. I'm exactly the Jerry type for you. Lately, there are these moments when I feel connected to something else. Would you please stop doing that? And stop saying stupid things. Talk about your bloodbath. <laughs> Greetings, sociopaths. Welcome to Avenging Angels here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the eighth and final season of the Showtime series, Dexter. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my dark passenger, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. How are you doing, Charlie? You doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I recently learned that Miami makes more corpses than sunburns, which I'm very thankful for. (laughs) Do you have anything to do with that? Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't say, but maybe? I don't think that's true, but it does make for a nice soundbite. So, <laughs> before I forget, I should mention, we are going to talk spoilers. Yes. Avenging Angels is a spoiler-filled podcast, so if you are not up to date uh, on the most recent episode of Dexter, you should probably not listen. All right, this is episode number three of Avenging Angels, focused on the second episode of Season 8 of Dexter. The episode is titled Every Silver Lining. It was written by Manny Cotto and directed by Dexter himself, Michael C. Hall. This is his first time behind the camera for the show. Charlie, why don't you go ahead and give a quick recap of the episode? So we pick up from where we left off in the premiere where Dr. Evelyn Vogel is communicating with Dexter and it's revealed that she has known Harry before uh, when Dexter was a child and is partially responsible for creating the code that Harry has given Dexter himself. And as she refers to herself, she has been a, quote, spiritual mother to Dexter, despite the fact that they have never spoken in person until this season. Deb is going through a bit of drama with her line of work after Dexter wiped out the person that she was sleeping with who had a hitman coming after him to take back the jewels that he stole. Her boss and her go back to that guy's place and investigate, and the hitman has come back for her, and things get messy from there. And it's highly implied that when the hitman shows up dead, that Deb is responsible for it. There's also new developments with Jamie and Quinn. Quinn has been talking about Deb nonstop around Jamie, and she's getting fed up with it. And it's causing tension with his partnership with Angel, who wants him to sign up for sergeant exam. Am I missing anything? The only thing you're missing is they give the new serial killer the name the brain surgeon. Oh, the brain surgeon, yes. How could I forget? Dr. Vogel thinks it may be one of her former patients, because apparently Dexter's not the only psychopath she's been experimenting with. Yeah, that that was a very Silence of the Lambs kind of uh, plot development. Kind of like reminded me of when Hannibal Lecter talked about how Buffalo Bill was one of his former patients. Yeah, so there's this guy named Sussman that they think is behind it, but then Dexter goes to Sussman's hunting lodge, and Sussman is dead. Mm-hmm. And it becomes clear that there is someone else pulling the strings, someone else who coerced Sussman into uh, 
killing some people. Yeah, and we also see a scene, uh, a very, very brief scene that's like not even 30 seconds long of him suffocating someone with a bag who's tied to a chair and him saying, you don't deserve this, but I have no choice before he eventually kills him. Right. So originally it looks like maybe he's a psychopath in the vein of Dexter who feels compelled to kill. But then later on there's a video and you realize, no, there's actually someone filming him, someone threatening him, and that's why he has no choice. All right. Here's a clip. You keep talking about me like I'm some kind of alternate species. Like I'm less than human. On the contrary. Have you read any of my books? No, I haven't gotten around to it. Well, if you had, you'd know that I believe that psychopaths are not a mistake of nature. They're a gift. A gift? They're alpha wolves who help the human race survive long enough to become civilized. An indispensable demographic. All right, Charlie. I think for this episode... Dr. Vogel and everything with her and her revelations. I think that'll be the main topic of this episode. So before we get to that, firstly, just tell me overall, what did you think about this episode? And then later on, we'll, we'll start talking spoilers. Okay. Um, I thought this was actually a very solid episode. Um, I preferred it much more over the season premiere. I think that the relationship that they're introducing between Dexter and Dr. Vogel is very intriguing. Charlotte Rampling is clearly having a blast playing this uh, over-the-top psychiatrist, and Dexter, in a way, has found a parental figure in her, or it seems like he may find a parental figure in her, but it's much different than what we've seen before with him learning to cope with his dark passenger with someone he's sexually attracted to or someone who is merely a friend. This is something different. It's something fresh, and it's something that, you know, is very much like the relationship that he had with Harry. And another reason I like this episode a lot is because she's kind of seems like she's almost going to take over for Harry in the real world, which means you get to cut out a lot of scenes of Harry talking to Dexter or Dexter imagining Harry talking to him in his head, which is, as I said in the previous episode, one of the weaker aspects of the show, in my opinion. And I was... uh, Happy that the subplot with Deb actually seems really fast-paced. It really moves. And you can feel her descendants into hell. And you can sense that she's going down in a downward spiral in a way that works with the pacing of the show and makes it feel real. It doesn't feel forced or contrived. I really enjoyed this episode. I realize I was, I, I know I was pretty cynical on the premiere, but this episode really sucked me back into the show and uh, definitely got my hopes up for the season. I liked this episode. I, I don't think it's quite as memorable as the premiere. In many ways, it feels like a transition episode, even though a lot of stuff happens, a lot of stuff that's probably pretty important. Mm-hmm. There aren't very many emotional outbursts and confrontations like there were in the premiere. No. This is, in in some ways, a very quiet episode. 
There are lots of monologues involving Dr. Vogel. So it does feel a little bit quieter. It does feel like one of those bridge episodes where they're trying to get from point A to point B. But overall, I liked it. I thought Michael C. Hall did a pretty good job directing it. And I, I mainly like it because of what they've done with Dr. Vogel, which we will touch on and, and we'll really dive into later in, in our discussion. This stuff with Deb and El Sapo, where she ends up killing him, didn't really work for me. I've got a lot of mixed feelings about it. I also really don't like, again, how they're not really doing much with the side characters. Batista, you know, isn't really doing anything in this episode except saying, Hey, Quinn, get your act together. <laughs> I like how they're, they're starting to imply that Quinn still has feelings for Deb, that he wants to be there for her. I like how they might be leading up to a development with that. How, how maybe Quinn could have more of a major role with Deb later on in the season. I like that. The other thing I don't like, and we might touch on this a little bit more when we get into the stuff with Dr. Vogel, Dexter finds the bag at the crime scene very easily. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't sure. I was trying to figure out... Is this serial killer just dumb, or is Dexter being set up? It just seemed like it moved a little bit too quickly. Like, the bag seemed like it was just tied to that pole or whatever next to the crime scene. And I was like, well, that's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that will actually be addressed later on in the season. I don't know. But it kind of annoyed me a little bit. But overall, yeah, that's that's just what I felt about the episode. It, a little bit mixed... I, I mainly liked it just because of the stuff with Bogle, and there's a lot of stuff with Bogle yeah. in this episode. Well, one thing I'll agree with you on is that I know I said that Deb's uh, subplot is fast-paced, and I like that. I do like it, but I do will agree with you on one thing. You don't even know how she gets out of that garage. It's just like, apparently she shot him. They just find him dead, and I kind of hate that when movies or TV shows just don't show you how stuff like that happens. I feel like it's kind of being lazy. And I will agree with you on that. At the same time, whenever Deb's on screen, I care for Deb more than I care about Dexter, but her subplot, I didn't really, like, I'm not as intrigued by. So the fact that it's moving along and getting her to do more things and getting her to emotionally collapse in very emotionally devastating ways was fascinating to me. I, I will agree with you that that subplot is kind of kooky and kind of full of holes, and it's not nearly as intriguing as what's going on with Vogel. At the same time, I find Deb to be a more interesting character, uh, or a more sympathetic character at this point than Dexter. Well, let's talk some more specifics about this whole Deb situation. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. At first, I was like, wait, how did she get out of the storage room? But then I realized, oh, wait, we never actually see El Sapo locking it. So I just assumed he put the door down and didn't lock it and just sort of left her there, you know, knowing that it would just take her a while to get out. That's being a lazy hit, man. Wow. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he even says, like, be glad I wasn't paid to kill you or something. Yeah, but at the same time, he, like, beat her down to the ground and kicked her, like, three or four times really hard. Like, you think that someone would probably get back up or try to escape or come back at you. Being me, I would probably just 
cry and go home. But, like, it's Deb, you know, and she is an ex-cop, and she's clearly not someone who looks like any other innocent victim walking down the street. So, like, I just found that to be a little kind of sloppy. I was okay with the fact that he wasn't going to kill her, and I just assumed, oh, he left her in the storage room but didn't lock it so she could get out, and he had no reason to think that she would come looking for him. But you're right, this whole thing with Deb as a killer, it is very sloppy. One, because she left her gun. (laughs) You'd think after all of the crime scenes that she's investigated that she'd be a little more thorough when it comes to covering her tracks. I I think that's just sloppy screenwriting. I don't think that's, you know, to call Deb sloppy is one thing. I mean, she's not a train. She doesn't kill people a lot, so obviously mistakes will be made. But, like, mistakes that big? Kind of hard to believe from someone who was just a lieutenant a year ago. Or six months ago, actually. Well, that's not the only reason the screenwriting is sloppy. I was just trying to figure out, wait, he took her gun. Where'd she get the other gun? Did she just have it? (laughs) Did she go get one and then find him? She drove to her local Walmart and just picked one up. (laughs) Did she, like, go go home and pick up her backup weapon and then come find him? I was like, wait, how did she get a gun? Because... (laughs) I mean, he, his body wasn't found outside the storage room, was it? I mean, I got the impression No, it was that- in his car. <laughs> but it's not like she just... It's not like he would be sleeping at, uh, so heavily that she could reach into the glove compartment without him noticing and then shoot him. That That is really sloppy. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, I, I got the impression that his car wasn't near the storage shed. So I, I just... I figured oh, she got out of the storage shed and then tracked him down to wherever he went. Yeah, and somehow found out where he was, and it's not like he'd just leave her in an unlocked shed and then just go into his car that's a block down the street and not lock it and not have the glove compartment locked enough for her. Yeah, that it's it's really stupid. Yeah, so th- th- there's just a lot of missing information <laughs> there, and and I think it's really just a poor way of getting her to trust Dexter a little bit again because oh it just puts her in a situation where now he has to help her out he has to hide the evidence so oh look he's helping her the way that she helped him at times and one I don't buy that she would kill El Sapo she doesn't seem to me like the murdering type even even though she killed La Guerta. Yeah, and she wasn't high on cocaine or drinking either, so she was clearly sober and just, like, in pain from getting kicked a few times. <laughs> right, and after she meets with Dexter out in the uh, in the alley by the police station, she says something like, well, it's not the first time I've done this, and I couldn't figure out if she was referring to the fact that she killed La Guerta, or if she was implying, hey, I've killed lots of people <laughs> since then. I- I've shot lots of bad guys when I've had to, or, I- you know, I-, I couldn't figure that out. So I-, I had trouble believing that Deb, one, would kill El Sapo, and two, just the the way in which she did it was so sloppy. It just really didn't work for me. I agree with everything you said. It didn't bother me as much while I was watching it, maybe because I'm still having trouble accepting that she shot La Guerta in the first place. So, like, you know, I, I didn't buy that when she did it. 
I was willing to go with that just because I could I could buy, okay, she loves her brother enough that she'll shoot LaGuerta. But then, you know, in the premiere, we saw, oh, she hates herself for it. She's self-loathing. She's filled with guilt. If you want me to buy that she's so emotionally unhinged at this point that she would go off and kill a random bad guy like El Sapo, you, you got to sell it. And they just didn't really sell it to me. It almost appears as if I would buy it more as if if they somehow work this into like Deb's cry for help because like you know it almost like a cry for attention and she just can't take hiding this in inside anymore like she can't bottle it up anymore. It just seemed so sloppy that it almost seemed like they're writing it as if the character wants to get caught at this point. You know, I think about when Winona Ryder. You know, you see the videos of her shoplifting from 10 years ago, and she's so clearly just trying to get caught. And that was when she was going through such a deep depression that it was basically a cry for help. I know that's a little off topic, but I would buy it more as if Deb is, like, severely depressed and can't take it anymore and is just not even fully conscious of what she's doing and just... Well, I'm not sure if I'd say that she's not fully conscious of what she's doing. I just guess that she's just so emotionally unhinged that she just can't take it anymore. I buy her breakdown more. And the fact that I am now just coming to acceptance that she shot La Guerta and I didn't buy that to begin with, it's at the point where I'm just like, okay, I guess since, you know, she did one ridiculous thing, I can buy her doing this ridiculous thing. I definitely agree with all of your criticisms, though. I mean, there, there's no defending some of the screenwriting for this episode, especially with that subplot. Yeah, I'm hoping they'll they'll fix some of that in later episodes. Let's move on to some of the the other characters uh, we mentioned briefly before. All this stuff with Batista and Quinn. I mean, it's something, but it's not much. It's pretty lame. Yeah, and and Quinn and Jamie both repeatedly ask Batista, "How'd you find out? How'd you find out about our relationship?" And he never answers. Nope, <laughs> nope. And that's like the screenwriters just kind of going, "Oh, you know, they're brother and sister, so they have you know like some connection where they always know." And uh, another thing that bothered me about that was like we haven't heard Quinn talk about Deb in a while, and then he mentions Deb once. I don't think he mentioned her last episode at all. And then Jamie just says, "Oh my God, you mention her every time we hang out," and then. Then they bring up Batista knowing that they're going out. And then Jamie just says, okay, I did not dress up just to get in a fight with you. And I'm like, well, you started this fight to begin with. And then she goes into her home where Batista is and then goes, you just made us have this huge fight. It was all your fault because you spilled the beans. (laughs) And I'm just like, no, Jamie, you're just being an idiot. And I don't care. (laughs) And it was just so awful. That was like the one scene, like I did like this episode overall, but that that was the one scene where they were arguing in the car where I was just like, this is awful. Yeah, and you know, Batista just keeps making the same joke like, oh, I'm a good detective. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's a good joke, but no, really. <laughs> How'd you find out? That's a good point. And like, yeah, just the whole thing about you should take a test to be sergeant. I'm just kind of like, Batista, you're due for a good subplot. It's the final season. Please, writers, if you're listening, please give him something to do other than support Quinn like a crutch, like he has been ever since Quinn entered the show, because he was a much better character when Quinn didn't exist. I mean, he wasn't much then, but at least he was having some interesting subplots with LaGuerta, especially. I feel bad for the guy playing Batista, because I feel like he really gets the short end of the stick. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing they'll do some more stuff with him and LaGuerta's evidence trail and stuff like that 
later on in the season. But they're taking their sweet time to get to that. So he just kind of feels like a character in limbo at the moment. And, you know, even though Quinn at times has felt kind of like a useless character, there have been times where I actually I, I like him and I like the actor playing him. I have nothing against the actor. I just want to bring that up. I know I complain about Quinn a lot, but no way do I blame the actor for this. I didn't like him when they first introduced him, but I liked it when he was in his relationship with Deb and they were engaged. I liked it even last season when he was doing that fairly cliche stuff with the stripper. I I, I didn't mind that. You're alone in that boat. Sorry. (laughs) I could be alone in that, yeah. I'm hoping that they'll keep developing his feelings for Deb and that maybe he will become sort of a lifeline for Deb because I do think that they were a good couple and that is the closest I think I've seen her be really happy and decide to to settle down. Mm -hmm. I, I would like it if he comes to save her from herself. I would like that too. This is coming from someone who doesn't like this character at all, but I agree with you. I feel like Deb and him were good together. That was really the only time where I felt like his character was likable and worked and served a good purpose on the show, apart from just having really uh, minuscule subplots that really don't go anywhere. I I agree with you, and it definitely implied that there's a chance these two are going to get back together because there is that shot where Deb's sitting in her car and then they make eye contact and then she drives away. And I I was thinking the same thing, Andrew. I agree with you. I think that would be really fascinating if Deb just breaks down to him and then, you know, he was right all along season five. I don't know what they do with Jamie afterwards, but considering how almost useless Jamie has been on this show, I guess that doesn't matter a whole lot to me. She'd have more time to take care of Harrison. Yeah, which would also uh, diminish the possible tension of Dexter, you know, having to bring Harrison along or having to spend more time with Harrison and not make a kill, which we talked about last episode. But yeah, Jamie, like, I don't even dislike her. I'm just so indifferent to her because she just serves no other purpose but to connect the dots between how is Dexter going to take care of Harrison? Oh, Jamie's here. I agree, and and she, her entire character is one of those awful dangling threads that was left when, oh, what's the actor's name? Josh Cook, I want to say, you know, left the show Mm -hmm. after showing up in season six and having that little thing where he was interested in the ice truck killer, and he was sort of interested in Dexter, and it was implied he might be on his way to discovering Dexter's secret, Mm -hmm. and then Josh Cook left, left the show, so they had to kill him off. And that went nowhere. Now, did he start off as Jamie's boyfriend, or did that just sort of develop? I, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember either. <laughs> I think that developed. Um, I think she had been Dexter's nanny for a while at that point. But that developed, and then he was kicked off the show, and here's Jamie again, just going to go back to being Harrison's nanny and occasionally hooking up with other members of the cast. Yeah. It just seemed like maybe when he, when Josh Cook was on the show, maybe they were going to do something more with her, but then that just never materialized. Yeah, she was in the relationship with that guy, and you felt bad for her then, because first of all, that character was just such a sleazeball to begin with. Lewis. Lewis, that was his name, right? Yeah, Lewis, Lewis, exactly. Yeah, like, he was just such a sleazeball to begin with. So that subplot never really interested me in season six, and that led into season seven, and then he got, uh, Lewis got killed off. Jamie, I just feel like she's exactly what you said she is. She's a loose thread that they don't know what to do with. 
part of me is wondering if they set up her dating Quinn in the first episode and now they're going to just have the conflict and seem like it's all going to drop in episode two. What's the point? Unless they're building up something unexpected that ends up turning into something that reveals Dexter's identity with something that obviously, you know, she finds out Dexter's not really where he says that he is and then that gets back to Quinn or Deb or someone. I don't know. I think that would be really lame. Honestly, I really don't care if she, you know, has something really important to do this (laughs) season or, or, or does something to really move the plot forward. I care much more about the other side characters, the actual police officers and what they might do to move things along and, and bring the show to a close. And we, we touched on this either last episode or in our introductory episode. I really hope that each member of the team and each one of these officers that we followed for eight years, I really hope that they get their moment to shine and really do something important. I, I really hope that Batista winds up following Luguerta's paper trail. I hope that Quinn winds up as a lifeline for Deb. I hope that Masuka maybe discovers some piece of forensics or something that, like, does a lot to lead to whatever happens to Dexter at the end. I just, I hope they all get their moment to shine. Otherwise, in a few of the cases, you're right, it is going to kind of be like, well, why were you here? Yeah, exactly. And I I agree with you. That would be fascinating, and I think a lot of people would not expect it, if Masuka found a piece of evidence that led to Dexter, and then he has to talk to Batista, and then if they team up, that would be cool. Well, see, the thing is, I mean, if, and we're again, we're getting into some speculation here, Mm -hmm. but if Batista follows Laguerta's paper trail, if Masuka finds some piece of forensic evidence... And Quinn's had his suspicions for a while now. That could all come together nicely to them realizing, oh my goodness, Dexter's a serial killer, we need to go after him. And it would make them all feel important and relevant and, and, and sort of like they were all in it together. There was no one kind of hanging back like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't go after Dexter. Maybe you're being paranoid. Yeah, and whenever they've done that, it's been so lame. Like, even in good scenes where, you know, LaGuerta arrests Dexter... And it's really suspenseful, and she's dragging him through the office in, like, the season finale of season seven. And all the characters just go, LaGuerta, what are you doing? Dexter? No. Why, what, why would you think Dexter? No, Dexter's great. And, like, all the characters just, like, surround her in, like, a semicircle. And they're just like, what are you doing? No. Dokes was the Bay Harbor Butcher. And I'm just kind of like, you know, I get it that Dexter's your friend. But when you really look at it, guys, like, Dexter has so many other sketchy elements about him that are make him so obviously the Bay Harbor Butcher overdokes. And I just felt like that was the writers just trying to, like, add tension without really using them as characters or, you know, using them as the characters that we've seen for eight years. They were just like, no, no, what are you talking about? No, that's stupid. And I'm like, is everyone else blind? Well, I'm willing to believe that they would choose denial, you know, if this is a person they've worked with for years and years. Because... It does, in a way, weird way, kind of reflect poorly on them if there was a serial killer working alongside them for all these years. So, so I could understand that impulse of them to want to deny it, which is why I think it's important that each person come to that realization on their own, due to their own paper trail or due, due to some other thing that they've that they discover. I think each member of the team needs to realize that he's the killer. 
But can't they just have, like, a small line that's like, yeah, he definitely does get excited at those crime scenes. I mean, like, even this episode where he takes the brain or whatever, and he's like, you could see Michael C. Hall basically trying to hide a smile, and I'm just kind of like, does Masuka not see this? Does he not see that he's, like, getting off on this, pretty much? I could go with that, because Dexter's a blood guy, so they they always have just assumed he's a little bit weird, and Masuka kind of gets off on it, too, where he he's making jokes and stuff, and giving his little Masuka giggle all the time. So, so I'm, I'm willing to suspend my, my disbelief to that extent. Again, I just hope that each of those main police officers gets a chance to shine. Especially Masuka, honestly, because really they have done nothing with Masuka. Yeah. Beyond that, again, that, that Josh Cook and whatever his little, Masuka's little assistant was, that subplot in uh, season six that ultimately went nowhere. Yeah, I really hope they all get a chance to shine. Uh, it, but at the same time, Masuka gets off on it in a way that's like, just sane to me, because why would you not want to break the tension with a little humor at a crime scene? Dexter gets off on it in a way that's like, it, after eight years of working with this guy, and he's been suspected of all of this stuff in eight years, you think someone would be kind of like, well, I guess that is a little creepy, and he does enjoy it a lot. Like, I just feel bad for these supporting characters because I feel like, you know, a lot of them have just not had much to do. And I feel like it would be a lot more interesting if they were put to use. I mean, not like I don't love Masuka, but he's basically just the comic relief. He's basically just there to crack a great one-liner and then just go off into the distance again. Well, are you ready to talk about Dr. Vogel? Absolutely. All right, so let, let's dive into our main topic of this episode Dr. Evelyn Vogel. Oh, by the way, I need to apologize. I was editing the last episode, and I realized I accidentally called her Elizabeth Vogel. No, it's Evelyn Vogel. And also, I, as soon as I edited the last episode, I realized the uh, the guy whose name neither of us could remember is Captain Matthews. Duh. How did we forget that? Yeah. Shame on both of us for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in case you couldn't tell, dear listeners, Charlie and I are not like Dexter aficionados. We have not read the books. <laughs> We have not watched each season obsessively. We've just, we've seen the show. Yeah. We've seen each episode once mm-hmm. <laughs> as it aired, and I usually don't go back and rewatch them. So, yeah, we do occasionally forget certain details. So, if we ever make any mistakes, please uh, write in and let us know. You can email avengingangels at filmgeekradio.com and, and set us straight. Hate mail is welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we're certainly no no experts, and so if we forget something important, uh, we welcome the input. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Dr. Evelyn Bogle. Last week, we realized that she knew all about Dexter. She was aware of Harry's code. This week, the opening shot is of an old videotape of Harry meeting with Dr. Vogel to talk about his 10-year-old son, Dexter, and how he was fascinated by murder. What did you think of this revelation that Dr. Vogel was involved with Harry from the beginning? I mean, like, you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief with any character who actually has been there all along and isn't revealed until eight seasons into a television show. I had to suspend a little disbelief. That being said, Charlotte Rampling's performance is so good, and I actually found her dialogue to be incredibly well-written. I really was fascinated by this new this new relationship. And it also brings in a character who Dexter now has to think of is also 
responsible for the way he is because, as we find out, she kind of structured the code that Harry introduced to Dexter because Harry confided in her as, I assume, his therapist. And it sounds like she gave this advice to him and eventually manipulated or convinced him that this was the proper thing to do, which I think is a nice twist. And I, and I do buy that because it makes Harry more human. It brings in a new parental figure to Dexter's life. And, you know, if you listen to the last episode, you can tell that I'm just fed up with Harry. And I feel like that he's that the writers have just run out of gas in terms of what should we do with him. So I feel like this is going to be a nice relationship that's going to form over this next, uh, these final episodes. Yeah, I absolutely love this development. It's clear that Dr. Vogel isn't telling Dexter everything. She's probably still got some secrets she's hiding. But I love the fact that they are rewriting his origin story. Yes, in a believable way, too. In a way that actually makes sense. Yeah, in a fairly believable way. Yeah, you have to suspend your disbelief to a certain extent. But I'm willing to go with it because, you know, this is the eighth season. This is where it's all supposed to come together into a conclusion. And everything stems from that origin story and from what we learned in the pilot episode of the show about how Dexter's mother was murdered in front of him and Harry raised him with a code. Everything stems from that. And the fact that they're going back to that and they're saying, look... Dexter just assumed that this was the truth, and this is what happened, but now he's learning that's actually not the whole story. That just brings to the surface all the major themes and ideas that have been running through the show from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, that idea of predestination versus free will. Does Dexter have a choice, or was he sort of created to be this way? Are his killings justified? Do the people really deserve it? Is he an angel or a demon? This revelation that there was a third party involved calls all of that back into question, which I think is really, really important, not only for the show as a whole, but just for Dexter as a character. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I mentioned last episode, I think, mo at least on the whole, the show has gradually been about Dexter having gradual rev revelations, making connections with other people, and it all seemed to be building to some sort of major epiphany. And now the fact that his origin and who his, in a sense, his identity is now being explicitly called into question again, I think that that's just perfect. I totally agree. And they sometimes when they've tried to make Dexter human or emotionally relatable, I haven't bought it all the time. I thought that they tried that in season six with the religious aspect, which I think was a okay idea, but it just kind of uh, fell flat. They had certain smaller, quieter moments in here that made me believe that Dexter was more human than he thought he was in a more credible way. One of the, my favorite exchanges of dialogue was at one point Dexter tells her I was young and I was lonely. I needed someone to talk to. And she acts surprised. And then he says, is that strange that I wanted somebody to talk to after Harry died? And she says, well, people like you don't usually seek out an emotional connection, which just that exchange of dialogue just totally rang true for me as opposed to like Dexter you know, just stating out his emotions in a voiceover monologue in a very blunt, unimaginative way. And I felt like this relationship felt real. It felt 
effective. And we did talk about, um, you did mention earlier how it was a quieter episode than the season premiere. I think a lot of the reasons I didn't like the season premiere as much was because it was so full of loud moments, like him strangling people behind the wheel for cutting him off on the highway or him yelling at Harrison. It was just so loud and so the emotional stakes were always amped up to 10. And here I felt like, especially with this relationship that he has with Dr. Vogel, the characters get time to breathe. So even though a lot doesn't really happen, they're taking their time and developing these characters and they are giving us an emotional investment before something incredibly dramatic happens which it just works for me. And even with Deb, too. I know that's a little off topic because we're on Vogel right now, but uh, his scenes with Deb were a lot quieter this episode, too, and I bought those a lot more as well. Right, and I, I, I think that worked in this episode's favor because I think as an audience, we need some quiet time to kind of process all of these revelations and think about their implications. I agree with you. I love that exchange where Vogel kind of suggests that well, wait, why did you feel lonely? Why did you want a connection after Harry died? Because, that, again, that gets at the heart of what Dexter is about, which is, to what extent is Dexter a monster? And I think at times, I, you know, the show has been too sympathetic of him and implied, well, maybe he's not really a monster. And he, there were definitely certain seasons where he really didn't see himself as such. But it seems to me as though season eight has really gotten back to the attitude of season one where no he's a monster yeah and it's clear he's a monster and he recognizes that he is a monster i mean he even calls dr vogel dr frankenstein yeah. and, you know, <laughs> he, he, he realizes that he is a monster at the same time if you go back and read frankenstein frankenstein's monster just wanted to be accepted was in some ways more human than frankenstein so it, it is complicated and even though, yes, Dexter's a psychopath or a sociopath or a mixture of the two, he's not a pure psychopath or a pure sociopath. So that, again, brings up the issue of responsibility. If he's not a pure psychopath or, or a pure sociopath, did he have to go down this path? Or did Harry and Dr. Vogel re really make him who he is? To what extent are they to blame? Yeah. And Dexter still seems to blame them for who he is on mm -hmm. the whole, which I think is a little bit problematic. And I, I, I'm hoping that eventually he'll come to a greater sort of self-realization about his own responsibility. But uh, he, he even says at one point, you know, if she's responsible for creating me, then she's responsible for what I've done with Deb. And I was thinking, well, no, I think you're in denial there. Yeah. Dr. Vogel and Harry might have uh, said, you know, they might have created him a psychopath. That doesn't mean that they've inflicted all and forced him to take all of the actions that led up to his demise with Deb. If that does become something, I hope that Dr. Vogel at least steps up and says, uh, yeah, I am responsible for creating what you are, but that doesn't mean I'm responsible for every single action you take because of it. I hope that the screenwriters don't try to convince us Dr. Vogel is responsible for everything. He is, she is the reason that his relationship with Deb is over because I, I agree with you. I don't buy that. Right. And the, the, the show to its credit has kind of given us some back and forth on what we should think and what Dexter thinks. There are times when he admits, yes, I'm a monster. This is what I do. I am damaged. 
But then there are other times where he seems to push the responsibility onto other people and say, well, yeah, but I'm damaged because of these people. So really it's their fault. Mm-hmm. And and I think that idea of who's responsible, you know, it, it's the whole nature versus nurture debate. Yeah. And I think that that's really fascinating. And, you know, speaking of this idea of epiphanies and responsibility – there's a video of Harry in this episode where Harry is asking Dr. Vogel, hey, Dexter confronts his victims with photos. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? And Vogel basically says, well, it's because he still has some idea of justice, you know, or wants, or wants them to realize what they've done. I'm wondering if at the end of the season we'll get something similar, you know, not necessarily photos, but something where, where Dexter is forced to confront all the people he's killed and all the things that he has done and 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 come to grips with that in his last moments whether it's whether he dies or whether he's convicted and goes to jail or whatever you know will there be that sort of confrontational moment where he has to see the photos to you know metaphorically speaking where where he has to confront his own actions yeah you could pretty much create like a collage and like, or just cover a wall with all of the people he's killed. I mean, how many episodes have there been? And he's killed what one person at least every two episodes or something. The cops could go to town and create like a huge collage of that. But uh, I, I agree with you. Um, it reminds me of that scene in. Um, have you seen American Werewolf in London? I've seen portions of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. You reminded me of one of the best scenes of that film, which is the guy, the protagonist who is a werewolf who uncontrollably morphs into a werewolf and kills people. There's a scene where he's in a movie theater and he has killed all of these people in the theater that like all the people in the theater are their victims and they're like totally friendly, but they're like got bloody gashes all over themselves and they're just like, hello, you killed us. And like, that would be great in a non darkly funny way. If Dexter almost in a dream sequence or something had to deal with all of the major characters who he's killed. Like I would be down for that to see like him in a scene with the ice truck killer and Lila and uh, the Trinity killer. And that could be a really intense, emotionally devastating scene. I mean, even though, yeah, they have been built up as antagonists. I mean, not even them, but just like the regular everyday criminals he seemed to kill off every episode in the early seasons. The one thing I'm worried about with the Vogel subplot, if she turns out to be the brain surgeon, I'm just going to throw my TV out the window because it, it, I, I, I hope they're not taking that route, but it seems like that's a possibility, and I really hope that they don't go there. I think that's a possibility. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. I don't think I would mind it because clearly she's got issues. She doesn't seem like she has a lot of empathy. She she seems like she could be a psychopath herself, which would explain why she's so quick to defend them as great contributions to society and how really they force progress. That's a pretty arrogant thing to say if you're a psychopath. Yeah, I mean, like, some of her dialogue, too, just, like, I, I guess, like, not like I didn't like this dialogue, because I found it to be kind of, uh, I found it to be interesting, but she has so many lines where she just talks about how psychopaths are, you know, actually a gift. At one point, she says, psychopaths are not a mistake of nature, they're a gift. Without psychopaths, mankind wouldn't exist today. 
And um, she has so much of that dialogue. And while I enjoy it, it just seems like they're showing, if that is the route they're going to take, it seems like the writers are showing their hand a little too much. And then on top of that, there is that scene towards the end where she's like, Dexter, you have to come over. Uh, I think there's someone in my house. And you don't see her hear anyone in her house. You don't see her see a silhouette of anyone in her house. And then Dexter comes over and he's like, oh, who left this DVD here? And she's like, I don't know, and puts it in. And then like, oh, my God, who could have done this? And if she does turn out to be the brain surgeon, please reveal that she is, like, in the next episode at the very least, and don't drag it on forever and treat us like we're idiots, because if this is a plot twist, I can see it coming. And, God, I sound so smug right now, but I'm just, I, I, after the Tyler Durden twist of season six, I just don't want them to keep pretending that I can't see this as a possibility. Right. I, I, I think that that could very well be the case. I think I'm okay with it though, as a concept, you brought up the other quote-unquote dark passengers, the other main big bads and antagonists that Dexter has met up with throughout the series. And this is, again, just speculation, and I I don't want to speculate too much, but Vogel does say that Dexter was not the only person she kind of experimented with. She just say that she used, quote, some other unorthodox methods, some of what might be considered illegal. So she is kind of this mad scientist who, it's implied, has created other psychopaths. And I was wondering when she said that, oh, what if it turns out some of these serial killers that Dexter has had to deal with, what if they were created by Vogel too? What if his brother was a product? What if Trinity even was a product of Vogel? I mean, that would be a really interesting, highly implausible, but also in a weird way kind of satisfying twist to me. Just because the the thing I think I like most about this all this Vogel stuff is that it, it just makes the show feel very mythic in mm-hmm. a sense. It's going back to some really basic archetypes about parents and children and predestination and free will and it's just dealing with a lot of very mythological themes so i think if there was some crazy twist like oh vogel actually created all these other psychos you've met (laughs) yeah that's really implausible but at the same time thematically i think it's i think it's that's really interesting oh uh, yeah I, i i agree it would be a stretch but i could like maybe just pick out, like, the best ones. Like, I could totally see it being Brian, his brother. I could see it being... I could see her doing that to Trinity, because if I recall correctly, Trinity watched his mother get bludgeoned to death with a hammer when he was a child, I think. I think that Trinity was traumatized like Dexter and Brian as a child, and that led to his serial killing, so I can see that. I, I'd, I'd be okay with it being, like, those two, or, like, if it was all of them, then I'd be like, well, now you're really stretching it, especially if it was, like, Colin Hanks, uh, who was Travis in the sixth season. But I agree with you. It is definitely getting mythical. I don't know why when you said that, but I was just thinking, like, uh, of, like, Ethan Frome or something, and I was just like, oh, God, is this going to get to a weird thing where Dexter's in love with her and they start (laughs) having a relationship? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that would get really weird and really crazy, and then that could set Deb off the deep end in ways we could never imagine. Well, I mean, hey, Freud would have a field day if that happened, if she's (laughs) his spiritual mother, (laughs) and they form a sexual connection of, of sorts. It would honestly be so crazy that I would kind of love it if, like, (laughs) at the end, they were just like, screw it. We're just going to go so over the top and take this route, and we're just going to revel in how over the top we are. I would kind of love that. 
yeah, I, I like how they are kind of getting back to these sort of mythical themes and 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 these archetypes. And I mentioned last episode or in the introduction, maybe both of them, I can't remember, that I, I, I like it when the show seems like it's trying to have something to say about violence, either social violence or individual violence, and how maybe the audience is violent or everyday people to an extent are violent. This episode touched on that a lot, actually, with, you know, when Vogel tells... Dexter, hey, you know, there are a lot of CEOs and politicians that share traits with psychopaths. And then when she's explaining the code and and how she developed the code with Harry, she says, quote, it was me who convinced Harry that your urges couldn't be stopped, but that they could be focused. Eventually, we realized that hunting animals wasn't going to satiate you. So we decided that you could be taught to kill other kinds of animals, people who truly deserve to die. Yeah. Just the way she said it, it just made me think about just how socially and politically we do treat violence as something that is at times acceptable. And we do kind of treat certain people like, oh, well, they deserve to die. So, yes, we're going to train our soldiers and get them to go overseas and kill them. Yeah, like Osama bin Laden or someone. Like, that's something I struggle with constantly is like, you know, everyone talks about should we have killed Osama bin Laden? And I don't believe in the death penalty. I am totally liberal and I can't come up with like, you know, like I've talked to so many people. My mom, who is like the most liberal person I know, was like, oh, no, like I don't believe in killing people at all, but we should have killed him. And I was just fascinated with that. And I was like, why? You don't think we could have done anything else? Like, I'm not upset that he's dead, but at the same time, like, I, this is going to get controversial. Now we're going to get a bunch of hate comments. It's fine. I've, yeah, I mean, you brought up Osama. I've, there was a whole episode of the newsroom about that. So <laughs> we did our newsroom podcast. We, we got a lot of that stuff. But, like, you know, that was what I could think of off the top of my head is someone like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or someone who is just basically created as this horrible villain through the media. Well, I think you're pointing out individual examples. What interests me here with Dexter is just how general it seems to be. Again, it's going back to some of these really general mythic archetypes. Here you've got Vogel basically saying, we realized you were violent. Yeah. We realized you could not be satisfied, so we channel that to the people who truly deserve it, or at least to the people that we think truly deserve to, to receive that type of violence. Yeah. So it, it's this very philosophical, quasi-religious idea that you're inherently evil. Mm-hmm. You had these impulses. We created you, and we are channeling you in the ways we want. It just makes me think of religion. It makes me think of politics and how, you know, just different forces and different social structures kind of say, well, yeah, human beings are bad, but if we if we act violently in this way, it's okay. Yeah. If we release these impulses in this certain in this particular way, well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I like that the show is making me think of that, and I like the sh- that the show is returning to those ideas. And the the last thing I want to say in that respect, and this is going to get a little bit academic, so bear with me, Charlie. Bear with me, listeners. I may have mentioned this before on a few other podcasts. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Walter Wink? And the myth of redemptive violence. 
Unfortunately, I am not. Okay. Well, Walter Wink was a theologian who, who invented this idea of the myth of redemptive violence. The, the idea that this cultural idea that we're brought up to believe that violence can bring order out of chaos, that violence can be good, that violence can allow us to vanquish our enemies, that violence is in essence a good thing. And I'm no expert on this, but one of the things he points to and he uses as the crux of his argument is he goes he goes back all the way to the Babylonian creation myth in which, in a nutshell, there's a mother god who does some stuff that her children gods don't like. So one of the ch- child gods, I think his name was Marduk, murders her. And from her entrails and from her body, that's what is used to create the universe. So the universe is basically birthed out of violence, and it's violence as a form of creation. And I was, and I just couldn't help thinking about that because this episode gets so mythical. Like <laughs> here, you have this mother figure who has raised violent children, and Dexter is the most perfect, the most prized one of all. What if ultimately Dexter ends up killing his mother figure, and somehow that is a form of creation or a you know a form of justifiable violence? I I don't know. It just got me thinking about that. Like, hmm. How familiar are the writers with some of these <laughs> ideas? Are they intentionally evoking that, or are some of these ideas just so universal and and so general and and mythological that we've seen them before? I I, I don't know. I think if you uh, mailed the writers a copy of that book, uh, the show would get a lot better uh, as a result. <laughs> and I think that the writers would definitely have their minds opened a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't read that. Uh, you know, like for example, I guess the re- most recent thing I thought of, which is not nearly as intellectually stimulating, is like the. That Jodie Arias trial, the woman who, like, stabbed her boyfriend, like, 27 times and shot him in the head. And it's just this gruesome, horrific murder that is basically turned into a freak show. And people are lining outside the courtroom when she got uh, sentenced to life in prison. And they're like, she deserves to die and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, if she got off with this, you know, if she somehow, you know, was found innocent... Would I want Dexter to get revenge on this character? And then I thought, well, it's real life, so I wouldn't want her to die in real life. But I know if I was watching this character on Dexter right now, I'd probably be rooting for him to kill her. And then I think that's kind of disturbing in my head. Like, I know it's there's obviously a big line between fictional forms of art and storytelling and reality, but I always have that line blurred at times, and it it, it makes me question my own thoughts on uh, you know the morality of violence and death, and do people deserve to die? Because whenever you know if she if Jodi Arias is sentenced to death, I'd say, well, that's hypocritical to kill someone just because they killed someone. But at the same time, I'm watching the show and you know totally addicted to it and rooting for the serial killer to get away with it. So. I think it definitely makes me think about things in relation to violence that are thought-provoking and are worth thinking about, and define your own ethics when it comes to this sort of thing. Like even when the show gets insanely stupid, and it has gone there, it has gotten stupid many times. Uh, the overall theme that it's exploring is really emotionally complex and morally twisted, and in a good way, in a way that I think is asking you to think about violence. 
and, and it's not just saying, oh, look, isn't it cool that we've created this serial killer and isn't serial killing cool and don't you wish you could get away with it? Yeah, it's those ideas that I think make the show really compelling. But if you're listening, dear listeners, mark my words, I, I'm not going to be surprised if Dexter, the perfect child psychopath, ends up killing mother psychopath, <laughs> Dr. Vogel, and it becomes this weird kind of philosophical, interesting theme. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is that assuming you're still listening and you weren't bored out of your mind when I went off on that, tangent google walter wink and myth of redemptive violence he's he's written a couple articles uh that you can read all about it that sum it up quite nicely also if you're a fan of movies and and entertainment criticism i was turned on to the idea of the myth of redemptive violence and how that influences culture by gareth higgins you can find his podcast over at thefilmtalk.com he's a good friend of mine so I'm just going to give him a little plug. Go check out <laughs> his show if you're interested in these ideas. At least you're introducing listeners to something that sounds very educational and informative, where I am just uh, mentioning something that people have been watching on the news for four months. So, Oh, no, 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 it, <laughs> no it's fine. It's totally fine. The issue of violence, and particularly violence in pop culture, has become one of my main areas of interest over the past few years, largely because of my friend Gareth and, and what he introduced me to in the, in the writings of Walter Wink. And just that, that link between on-screen violence and real-life violence and the cultural ideas about violence and, and how they get perpetuated. I just find all that stuff really fascinating. So it's not unusual for me to watch a piece of entertainment nowadays and then come away thinking about that sort of stuff. So I apologize to any of our listeners if you were just kind of like, well, where's this coming from? <laughs> I'll try not to go too far down that road again, at least anytime soon. I think it's fine if you go down that road, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, it, maybe in regards to a show like Dexter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have research to back it up, so it's, you're clearly doing your homework. Again, I'm no expert on Babylonian creation myths or anything, <laughs> but it would it would not surprise me if the writers of a show like Dexter that deal so explicitly with this idea of violence and whether or not it's justified, it wouldn't surprise me if they're somewhat familiar with Walter Wink and, and the myth of redemptive violence and just that concept. I believe that idea originally came around in maybe the 90s, I want to say. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Maybe they are familiar with it. I, I, I don't know. But it's, it's possible. I think next episode we're going to find out how Harry was secretly Zeus. And, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know, Dexter could have a dream and he'll be, like, on Mount Olympus in the clouds or something. <laughs> well, that's interesting, again, <laughs> because, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not, I, I don't know a whole lot about Greek mythology, but aren't there times in Greek mythology when the gods could control humans? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I haven't read about this stuff since high school, so it's been, like, six years i i wouldn't put it past you that sounds definitely like uh, something that could have been in there yeah th i mean these are just really culturally universal and and just really embedded ideas that we're seeing dealt with here just this idea of you know that that relationship between creation versus creator to what extent does the do the created beings have free will to what extent are they controlled by their creator these are these are 
not new ideas, people, <laughs> but they're but they're still fascinating, which is why they're still present and still so heavily relied upon in culture after all these years. You sound a lot more informed than probably half the writers on this staff right now, who are probably just <laughs> like, how do we wrap this up? How do we keep people happy? How do we keep the pace of the show flowing? I mean, you know, like, if only they use your Greek mythology knowledge, uh, your knowledge of Greek, <laughs> myth- Greek mythology uh, in season six, because their usage of religion and metaphors uh, in relation to, you know, religious faith just made no sense whatsoever. I don't know. Maybe they're familiar with some of that stuff and they're just not executing it well. Maybe we'll start to see some of that stuff play a larger role this season. I don't know. I'm I'm hopeful. Again, I like the show best when it is dealing with some of those thorny thematic issues. <laughs> and I, I get the impression you do too. So hopefully we'll see more of that. Yeah. And then maybe they'll put like Dexter on, like, death row in the very last episode, and then they're like, oh, we've shocked him with, like, 10,000 volts. Why isn't he dying? And then uh, it turns out he's actually Hercules. <laughs> or, yeah, or or he kills Vogel and then creates the universe with her. <laughs> <laughs> it just turns into, like, a Stanley Kubrick acid trip 2001 style for the finale, and then everyone's just staring at their screen like, what? <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen and what the response would be? People would be like, what? This is the craziest thing since the ending of The Sopranos. What is happening? (laughs) I just pictured, like, Deb in, like, a toga with a harp just going across the screen. It's like, and then God created the world. And I I don't know. (laughs) Oh, God. This is a very strange episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Avenging Angels Greek Mythology Edition. <laughs> and Babylonian creation myths. Yes. Oh, you got gotta love those Babylonians. <laughs> all right. We're recording late at night, so if this episode is just all over the place, that's why. It's because we're committed to bringing you the episodes as soon as possible, and we're, we're getting a little loopy. So <laughs> we apologize. Is there anything else you want to say about this episode of Dexter before we wrap things up? Just that it's, once again, not perfect, but I found it to be an improvement over the premiere, which I found to be just so melodramatic and so in your face with, these are the stakes, look at how high these stakes are, and here they're just kind of relaxing, and it's not an episode where much happens, but I prefer episodes like these that take their time and let the characters breathe and actually make them feel real. So when something fast-paced and suspenseful happens, we are invested in it. I feel like this is an episode I'll look back on as being a strong point in the show for when, you know, something crazy happens. It, even if something crazy happens in, you know, the next episode, like the fact that we got a little bit of time to breathe, uh, I think definitely has its merits. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm enjoying the season so far. I like how it's bringing up some of these thematic issues. I will really like this Vogel development. We'll see what happens. But let's move on to our final segment of the show. Last week, we did a little fun thing where we uh, asked each other which character we would kill off. We're going to do something a little bit different this episode. Charlie, I just want to ask you, because we've been talking so much about serial killers and violence and violence in pop culture and mythology, etc., are there any other movies or TV shows about violence or serial killers that you think our listeners should check out this week while they're waiting for the new episode of Dexter to air? 
Well, if any of our listeners have not seen the Patty Jenkins film Monster, starring Charlize Theron, which she won an Oscar for, it is one of my favorite films that focuses on a serial killer. This is also based on a real-life serial killer, uh, Aileen Warnos, who, back in the early 90s and late 80s, I believe, claimed to be the most infamous female serial killer of all time. I'm not sure if that sticks anymore, but Patty Jenkins's film Monster focuses on this woman who was ultimately driven to kill men. She was a prostitute who would hitchhike and basically just uh, get by by making change for sexual acts. And one night she is sexually assaulted and kills a man in self-defense. And that sends her down a terrible spiral into madness where she's convinced that most men are wicked, horrible women abusers. And at the same time, and this is also uh, what happened in real life, she forms a relationship with this woman who in the film is played by Christina Ricci and her name is Selby. And it's one of Christina Ricci's best performances. Charlize Theron gives one of the best performances I have ever seen. I saw this film when I was like way too young and it really emotionally devastated me and it was one of the few films that really disturbed me because it was the first time I felt empathy and heartbreak for a serial killer in modern art. Patty Jenkins, the director, also went on to direct episodes of Arrested Development, including one where they make a joke about Monster when Charlie's there and his guest starring, which is kind of fun. I feel like it's a film that's been overlooked over the past decade. I know that Charlize Theron was obviously receiving all of the justified acclaim that she got for her performance, and yet I feel like the film has kind of uh, gone under the rug a little bit. It's absolutely worth seeking out. If you like Dexter and you like thinking about violence and what is justifiable in terms of violence and characters who are sympathetic that use violence as their own moral code, I highly recommend this film. It is just a tour de force on every level. It's a good recommendation. I got a few things I'm going to recommend. Uh, but first, our conversation about violence and the myth of redemptive violence has got me thinking. I'm going to recommend two movies related to that and also kind of give a few shameless self-plugs. <laughs> Go watch the movie Looper if you haven't seen it. Great film. And read an essay I wrote over at Film School Rejects uh, last year about how that movie relates to the myth of redemptive violence. And also, go see The Purge in theaters if it's still playing near you. That's a really interesting movie about violence and, and cinematic violence. Um, and I wrote an essay for MovieMezzanine.com about how that relates to Aristotle and Plato and some other Greek <laughs> figures <laughs> over at Movie Mezzanine. So if our conversation has made you interested in that sort of thing, go see that movie and go check that out. In terms of serial killers, I've actually been watching a lot of TV about serial killers lately. It's kind of weird how how it worked out. But I'm going to recommend two TV shows that you can find on Netflix. They are both British shows, I believe. The first one is a show called The Fall, and it stars Gillian Anderson of the X-Files fame as a detective in Belfast tracking down a serial killer. And it's it's only the first season, you can watch it on Netflix. It's only five episodes, so it's not a huge time commitment. Not only is it a good police procedural, but it's also a really interesting look at why men abuse women and why a lot of serial killers are men attacking women. 
um, and, and just kind of gender roles and power and, and, and that sort of thing. So really, really good show. And also there's another British show called Luther starring Idris Elba, who people may be familiar with from The Wire, where he plays a brilliant Sherlock Holmes type detective who kind of has to get his hands dirty at times in his search to take down some serial killers. Really good show. You can find the first two seasons on Netflix to stream, and I believe season three just premiered in the UK. So The Fall and Luther are my two serial killer recommendations. I haven't seen either of those, so I'll have to add those to my queue as soon as possible. Yeah, go, go check them out. Definitely. Oh, also, one one more thing. I know this is last second, but uh, also, if you have not seen the film Seven, directed by David Fincher, rent it as soon as possible. It gave me the chills in ways that few serial killer films ever have. It stars Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Brad Pitt's the new guy in the police squad. Morgan Freeman is retiring in a week, and they are hunting down a serial killer who is killing through the Seven Deadly Sins. It's one of the best films of the 90s. It doesn't show you any violence. It only shows you the aftermath, which, in my opinion, makes the content all the more disturbing and haunting. It inspired films such as the Saw franchise, and it has one of the most disturbing, shocking, jaw-dropping endings I've ever seen. So if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. Great movie. Absolutely fantastic. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Avenging Angels here on Film Geek Radio. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing episode 3 of season 8 of Dexter. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at, at uh, avengingangels at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. We are in the iTunes store now, so please subscribe so you'll get all of our updates as soon as they come out. Please write us a review. That would really help us out a lot. So that's really going to help us get the word out about the program. Uh, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix and The Thin Place. And if you're a fan of The Newsroom, I just think I should mention that we will be resuming our weekly podcast on the newsroom, Navigating the Newsroom. That premiere episode should come out within the next few days, so be on the lookout for that. Charlie, where can people find you and your work online? You can find the articles that I write for your Emerson Magazine online at Issue. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash your magazine Emerson. And you can find me on Twitter at CTNash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And what's in the box? What's in the box? This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!